We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Up north on the California-Oregon border, there's a water conflict that's a microcosm of what's coming to the West as the climate changes and old political paradigms break down. It pits members of the Klamath tribes against multi-generational white farmers and anti-government extremists. And as tensions have risen, the underlying bigotry has come right up to the surface. As tribe member Joey Gentry puts it. Our water crisis still exists today because of racism against the tribe. And racism against the tribe exists in part today because of our water crisis. We'll talk about a new documentary on the Klamath crisis, and then we'll meet a young political candidate who hopes his experience with homelessness will help him solve the Bay Area's problems. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In a new documentary, When the Water Stopped, part of Al Jazeera's Fault Line series, we meet some of the farmers of the Klamath Basin. They've been there for decades in some cases after the federal government both stripped the Klamath tribes of their recognized status in a process called termination and built a massive waterworks to supply the farmers with irrigation. I was here since termination when they terminated the tribe. The Indian land was broke up and sold. We occupied it just like the Romans did. The strong were stronger. That's the way it's been since time again. The strong take it away from the weak. They always have. That was rancher Leroy Ginger. For younger farmers, they don't see themselves as having done anything wrong to be born in a place that was ripped from Native Americans with the force of the federal government. In fact, they feel aggrieved that they no longer are getting water that they feel was promised to them because federal authorities say it's necessary to protect endangered fish species that are sacred to the Klamath tribes. It was the federal government who wanted all of us people to come down here and farm this newly reclaimed land. So my family did, came down here. We've invested our whole entire life for four generations into making this basin what it is today. But now the table's turning and the same federal government that told my family to come here 115 years ago is now telling me to get the hell out of here or forcing me, if for a better term, to get the hell out of here. And yeah, I feel betrayed. This farmer named Rodney is a complex local issue, but it reflects so many of the modern tensions across the West. Water rights, 
climate change, racism, and the struggle to contend with the brutal histories that brought prosperity to some and tragedy to others. Joining us to talk about the issues are two people featured in the documentary. Joey Gentry, activist and member of the Klamath Tribes. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Hi, Joey. And we're also joined by Emma Maris, environmental writer and reporter. She wrote a piece for The Atlantic this summer titled, The West Can Win the Water Wars Now. Welcome, Emma. Nice to talk with you. Nice to be here. Yeah. You know, Joey, I thought I would start with you. How do you feel when you hear the white ranchers and farmers describe their view of the water issues? It's it's agonizing. It's frustrating. Um, we're constantly fed this narrative from them that is often not true and often in complete conflict with um, the truth. Often um, there's a level of irony and hypocrisy in, in some of their statements. It, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's suffocating. What got you into doing this kind of active activism? I know that, you know, you had gone to Portland and then like kind of come back into your community. What made you want to sort of enter this fray? I never wanted to enter this um, process but I have no choice because the situation is critical. Um, we are in catastrophic drought and it is not looking better. So I just had no choice but to step outside of my personal level of comfort and be vocal. Yeah. And Joey, what do you want to have happen in this with, with the water? That's sort of evolving as our crisis evolves. I think for years, I've just longed for my community, um, my hometown, and my homelands to be in peace. And I always thought that there was a way for both our farmers and our fish to thrive and our tribes to heal and our communities to unite and heal together. And as the situation worsens, as we inch closer to extinction, I don't know that that vision I had is possible in the way I imagined it. And these fish that we're talking about, can you tell us a little bit about them and the significance to the Klamath tribes? Well, our creation story in in the documentary, we're told that if the fish die, the people die. Um, we are linked um, spiritually, culturally, and physically in that these were subsistence food sources for our people. Um, we're told that, you know, creator, um, our people were in famine. And on top of that, we were also being attacked and preyed upon by this giant serpent that lived at the, near the ridge near the lake and creator heard our prayers and our dances and killed the serpent, this giant serpent with um, an obsidian knife, cut the serpent up into, you know, millions of little fish that became or pieces that became our chwam, our, our sucker fish and um, gave us this life. Um, the fish would, would sustain us and be life. And so the, the connection is, it's impossible to explain the connection we have um, spiritually our entire existence 
depends on those fish on these lands, on these waters. Emma Maris, uh, journalist, can we can you sort of step back and talk about how this conflict got started? I mean, the history of the Klamath Project is one of those 20th century stories that's both sort of awe-inspiringly ambitious and also just feels so deeply reckless from our perspective now. Yeah, I think a lot of the roots of this conflict are that the federal government made two sets of promises, one to the Klamath tribes in the form of a treaty, and then another set of promises to farmers after they built this project. Um, and they kind of promised uh, that the treaty, uh, the treaty promised that the tribes would always be able to access their, their hunting and fishing rights in their former territory, whereas the, you know, the irrigation project promised a a bunch of water to a bunch of farmers in perpetuity. Um, and there's just not enough water for both of those promises to be kept. So when we talk about, you know, we heard one of the farmers talking about how the federal government invited um, white farmers in. Can you tell us a little bit how the area actually got settled? I mean, because it's, it's homesteading, right? I mean, they were essentially veterans were invited in, given this land and promised this water. Yeah, I mean, like anywhere else in the West, the history is complicated. Um, but uh, you know, key key milestones were were the, the treaty that was signed in 1864, um, and then th- a lot of the homesteaders, a lot of the families that farm here now, came, like you said, at, you know, within the last 150 years. A lot of them came after World War II. They were still handing out homesteads in the 1940s. Um, so uh, some of the some of the same people who who appeal to history and tradition and the generations of their family to claim the rights for the water, uh, you know, they they're they're mentioning two, three, four generations at most. Whereas the Klamath tribes have been here for fifteen thousand years. I think there's something like three hundred generations there. Wow. So in in these various battles, right? I mean, there's the there's the actual like battle going on in the community of people you know, trying to gain support for various things. But what's the legal basis for the various actions that the federal government has taken? Again, uh, very complicated. You, you know, you need a degree in water law to be able to to, to lay it all out with total confidence. Um, but I think an important point is that the, the, rights, the rights to the water in the lake, as well as the water in the river, um, have recently been reaffirmed to belong to the tribes before other parties. Because in a lot of uh, Western water law, it's it's really just who who got the rights first. Who was there who was first? There first. Right. Senior, the most senior rights they call it. Right? Exactly, and so um, you know the Klamath tribes have had uh, rights to this water since time immemorial, which is a legal phrase as well as a beautiful poetic phrase, <laughs> and so they get the they get the first crack at the at the water rights. And then, but the Endangered Species Act is also playing a role in all this, right? Yes, exactly. And so sometimes when the water is turned off to farmers like it was uh, in this last season, it's not because of the tribal water rights at all. It is, in fact, because of the obligations to uphold the Endangered Species Act that the federal government has to, uh, you know, has to work with. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, Emma, also about how this connects in with a lot of the broader issues in the West. There have been some folks who've, who've come into this fight from, you know, outside of the Klamath Falls area where you live and where Joey lives, who have those people been and what's their sort of stake in this? Well, this this summer we had, um, you know, we had this sort of specter of the Bundy family raised as as a p- people who might come in to help 
uh, farmers fight for their quote unquote rights to this water. Um, they never actually showed up, but it, but even the, the sort of the threat of them coming was enough to discombobulate town for an entire summer and put everybody on edge. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one group of people. And then, uh, you know, of course there's also um, many of the local people see various government agency representatives as outsiders. Yeah. And I, I, what about, the uh, other folks are supporting Joey Gentry. What about other folks supporting the Klamath tribes? Have you been able to link up with other indigenous water protectors or activists? Yes, and also non-native allies. And I think that is part of what has enabled me to have a voice and to be able to speak on these matters. It's, it's like, um, it's been like climbing a ladder when I'm terrified of heights. And you take that first step up and make a public statement, maybe just on social media, um, take another step up, everything's okay. Um, but then the Black Lives Matter protests started happening. And with during that time period, we were connected with other local allies, people of color and white allies who also were concerned about our water crisis and who could see the position of the tribes. And, you know, this is never, um, for us, it's never us, them, but this racial component plays such a big piece of it. And it's, it, when people like Emma Maris or other allies begin to be vocal about that, we sort of, um, it ignited our passion. We found our voices because historically it has been unsafe for us to be able to speak about these matters. Mm. We'll talk about that more after the break. We're talking about the water crisis in the West, specifically in this case, in the Klamath Basin up on the California-Oregon border with Joey Gentry, activist and member of the Klamath Tribe, and Emma Maris, environmental writer and reporter. She wrote a story for The Atlantic this summer titled The West Can Win the Water Wars. Now they're both featured in the new Fault Lines documentary, When the Water Stopped by Al Jazeera. We want to hear from you. What questions do you have about these kinds of disputes? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Emails form at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the water crisis in the West, specifically up on the California-Oregon border in the Klamath Basin with Joey Gentry, activist and member of the Klamath Tribe, and Emma Maris, environmental writer and reporter, also lives up there. She wrote a piece for The Atlantic this summer titled The West Can Win the Water Wars Now. They're both featured in the new Fault Lines documentary, When the Water Stopped by Al Jazeera. We would love to hear your questions uh, about this kind of water dispute. How should we settle? We know these are coming because of climate change. We know that the federal government in many cases has promised too much water to too many people. 
So how do we actually get out of this? If you've got ideas, give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, I'd love to, uh, Emma Maris, talk with you about, uh, uh, actually, there was a, a, a proposed solution not not just yours, but in the region generally, um, there was actually an agreement that people came to back in 2010 that seemed like it might end this particular water crisis before it continued to escalate. Can you talk a little bit about how it is that that agreement sort of came together or a- agreements seemed possible and, and how they've also fallen apart? Yeah, there was a, a pretty amazing process that took many years of, of people on, on all different sides of this uh, complicated dispute, including not just the tribes and, and, and agriculture producers, but also, you know, there's some wildlife refuges in this watershed that need water for bird habitat. So lots of different stakeholders. And they did come to at least a couple different big agreements that, that you know, we were very close to signing and seeing happen. And everybody was happy about this because even if there are compromises made, you know, if I'm an agriculture producer, what I really want is predictability. I want to know what's going to happen if there's a drought year, how much money I'm going to get in relief. You know, what's, what is the water allocation going to look like? Right now, there's no predictability for these guys. So um, unfortunately, at the last minute, these agreements were, were kind of torpedoed by political ideological moves by local politicians, including our former Congressman Greg Walden. Um, and they were, it was so close. And then when it fell apart because of the sort of conservative ideology, it would just broke a lot of hearts, I think, mm-hmm. here in the region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think one of the uh, questions and, and things for people to sort of understand is that when essentially when the fish don't get water, the fish are dying, not just sort of the, the sucker fish that the Klamath tribes um, really uh, rely on and are sacred to them, but also to other people uh, downstream. So here we're going to hear Yurok fisherman Sammy uh, Gensaw talking about the loss of salmon, uh, again, in the Fault Lines documentary for Al Jazeera, When the Water Stopped. And I remember the smell. Just the smell of genocide is the best way to describe it because you smell so much death in these places that offered nothing but life-giving opportunities. Right after that, we also hear that the tribe estimates that less than 5% of that salmon run remains. And you know, one of the questions I have for you, Emma, is to what extent we think these, you know, this, both the suckerfish and the salmon can actually be brought back by cutting a new deal around this water or whether the climate has changed so much that we actually can't bring the fish back? That is a great question. And I think it's maybe ultimate. I don't think there's an, we have an answer yet. Um, you know, partly because we haven't tried, right? Like we haven't done all of the restoration and the water quality stuff and the dam removal that we could do to protect both of the upstream suckerfish populations and the downstream salmon. Um, I almost feel like we have to just give it our best shot. Um, But you're right, with the climate changing and the water heating up, um, it's possible that even our best shot won't be enough. Um, And that's a really hard thing to contemplate. But we'll never know unless we try. Yeah. There's also, I want to return to the specific situation um, here in, in, in and around Klamath Falls. 
there's just a it gets really at some of the tensions of, of like deep history. So I want to hear again, uh, Farmer Rodney Chain one more time again from the Al Jazeera documentary, When the Water Stopped. My family's been here for, you know, 117 years, 15 years. I feel like what I was born to do. And I've, I feel like I do a good job at it. And I've got everybody in the entire world against me. And that's not a good feeling. I, Rodney Sheen, did not kick anybody off any piece of ground for his own benefit. I wasn't the one that was in here physically killing them and moving them and taking them off their land. The fish is the only way the tribes can get retribution on the white man. That, again, was Farmer Rodney Sheen from the Fault Lines documentary for Al Jazeera, When the Water Stopped. You know, Joey Gentry, uh, I wanted to ask you about the way that the farmers sort of describe history. You said earlier that you didn't agree with the way that they, you know, sort of painted this portrait. But in that cut, it almost seems like the farmers sort of admitting like, hey, you know, we, we did this, but it wasn't me. And so that's deep history and we just need to move on. Right. And to that, I would say that you are still the beneficiary of the genocide and attempted extinction of our people. And it, it that particular clip sort of speaks of some of the conflict or, or hypocrisy I hear from farmers in that they are so clear in expressing their heritage and he was born to do this and this is where he belongs and he already feels a connection to this place and his land and his farm. But yet there seems an inability to grasp that our people have been here since time immemorial. And our we are Klamath. Our DNA is throughout this region. And it, it's always fascinating to me how they can um, own their heritage and their right to this place but we lost everything to give that to them for them to have this lifestyle. And um, I think our tribal people certainly empathize with, with their plight, right? We understand what it feels like for the government to make promises and then fail to keep them. We can understand and empathize with that, but um, it, I've not seen our agricultural community be able to do the same have that empathy and understanding. Emma Maris, you know, it's hard, even in liberal, very diverse places, for people to actually take this historical reckoning that has been, you know, churning uh, in our culture, but turn it into, like, concrete benefits for people of color who've been harmed in the past. And here you have a situation in which that... You're you're not going into like a liberal bastion and saying like yes you recognize this history was wrong, and therefore there should be some sort of remediation. That said, are there people in the community who recognize the injustice of the history there and are committed to changing the the fate of the Klamath tribes? Yes, I mean I'd say there's sort of two categories. There's people who say well, what happened to the Klamath tribes was unfair, but, and then they go on to sort of assert the, you know, the the premise that nothing should really change and that 
power and land and water should all stay where it is. Um, and then there are, I think, people, uh, including non-tribal people who really do want to see, you know, uh, serious changes around here in terms of who has the power and who has the um, and who has the land and who has the water and all those kinds of things. Now, the Klamath Tribes does have the right to the water that's legally been established. So in some and in some ways they have yet to flex those rights. Um, but the the racism against tribal members is really prevalent in town and in mm -hmm. the county to an uncomfortable level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, Joey, how have you experienced that in town, you know, in the different towns there around Klamath Falls? Are there places you don't go? I will go anywhere at this point because I have to, and these are my ancestral homelands, but I am afraid a lot of the time. And have you been getting threats? Um, I know that there've been sort of armed counter protests there um, in the past. I have not been personally threatened um, for a minute. I farmed hemp um, for all of, you know, four minutes, two seasons. And at one time I spoke at one of the irrigators meetings. And after that, um, several threats were delivered to my non-native business partners, but um, they they didn't deliver them to me personally. People would confront me in um, businesses or one time even at the nursing home when I was visiting my mom. Um, somebody confronted me about the things I said at the meeting. So it, it's concerning. I, I often worry about our tribal council, my, our tribal chairman, who's my brother. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Why don't we hear a cut, I believe it's cut uh, seven, of your brother talking about sort of his current safety situation. Oh, never mind. Because uh, we, we do not have that cut. But I, yeah, as I understand it from the documentary, um, he has actually be, begun carrying a firearm because he's so worried about his safety. Yes, and at times during the... Um when our equity task force was presenting to our city council, um, somewhat related to the water issues, members of our tribal council were present to give support to our equity task force and the recommendations that we were making. And I felt fear for those tribal members and especially the tribal council members that came to town to give their support to the recommendations. Yeah. Um, you know, because every... You hear in the documentary, you hear in the farmers and irrigators quoted in media publications from New York to L.A. Um, historically, for the last 20 years, overt threats of property damage and physical violence. And so for decades, our community has tolerated those threats of violence um, and defending their freedom of speech to do so. I want to uh, change tax a, a little bit here to one of the solutions that has been proposed. One of our listeners, Jeff, writes, since the federal government has promised the farmers water that can't be provided, has there been any thought of the government buying out the farmers at a truly fair price, I would hope? That really should be on all of us as taxpayers. Yeah, this is, um, you know, a, a great idea and one that I uh, advocate for uh, strongly. And, um, you know, the 
in the agricultural community, there is a lot of distaste for the idea of shrinking the project or having fewer acres under irrigation. Um, but there are also lots of older producers who are retiring and their kids aren't interested in keeping up the business. Um, so even, you know, I don't think we even necessarily need to use any kind of eminent domain or any kind of instrument like that. I think that just by opportunistically buying out producers that are going out of business or putting their stuff up for sale, the government could could acquire a lot of land in the space. And, and you know, ideally, I, I would say transferring that land back to the Klamath tribes would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Is there any dispute that it should be all taxpayers who end up, you know, helping out this particular group of farmers? I mean, this group of farmers is being helped out quite a bit by taxpayers uh, every year, not only through regular agricultural subsidies, but for example, when they turned off the water this year, there was a lot of uh, relief funding that came into the basin. Um, you know, it's it's not new news that anti-government sentiment is often held by people who are cashing government checks. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely happening here in the basin. Yeah. Let's bring in caller Irma from Fremont. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, um, yeah, um, I was listening to the program. Very interesting. Um, thank you for having this program. Uh, my opinion is that the greatest burden of responsibility lies on the federal government mm -hmm. because they were the ones that made the double promise and giving the the history of the federal government not fulfilling Indian treaties, I would say that it will be a good opportunity for the federal government to uh, to fulfill this treaty and keep the rights of the tribe, finding a way of, like the previous uh, caller said, maybe buying out the farmers is a way, or, but... Um, my position is that um, this, this, that the rights for the water should go to the tribe rather than to the farmers in this case. Thank you so much, Irma in Fremont. Emma Maris, you know, one of the questions, I mean, buying out farms, and eventually we may be facing this with almond farmers in the Central Valley and all, all over the place. Um, do we have a process for doing this? Like, is there, is there, given that this is going to be a very common political battle, given that you've been reporting from all over the West and, and, and really the nation on, you know, this world we're going to be living in uh, as the climate changes, like, could this be a model or is there already one out there? I mean, uh, you know, if the question is, could the Klamath Basin be a model of how to fix a watershed? I actually am really enthusiastic about that possibility because I think that, uh, uh, you know, I wrote in the Atlantic piece that you could do all the things that you need to do to save the fish and 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 reallocate the water for like a billion dollars, which sounds like a lot. But these days, with the size of the bills we're passing, isn't you know, it's it's uh, not as much as it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I am really hopeful that that Klamath Basin could be, and we are getting a little bit of money from the infrastructure bill. I think we're getting 160 million for ecosystem restoration. But uh, you know, if we had a little bit more, we could do amazing things, honestly. Um, and in terms of land acquisition or land transfer, you know, I think the federal government really is, is going to be. I mean, Joe Biden has has said he's going to increase the number of protected areas in this country to 30 percent by 2030, which is 
very soon. So if he doesn't have some uh, pretty good, you know, if the federal government doesn't have some pretty good mechanisms to be moving land around, they should get some pretty quick. But I think, you know, I mean, we used to in this country routinely use uh, use government powers to acquire land for things like uh, fossil fuel pipelines. So if we can do that, we should certainly be able to do so in the name of fixing our natural infrastructure. Yeah. Listener Curtis writes, the foundation of our country is based on white might is always right. We actually heard a farmer say that in the introduction. Non-white persons and groups have always started these disputes in an extremely disadvantaged position. This is no different. Agriculture producers retain a white privilege entitlement that until only recently can be effectively challenged in disputes. Joey Gentry, I wanted to ask how effective you think the activism has been uh, that, that you've done and, and your community. I think that's yet to be seen. I think the narrative is definitely shifting. In 2001, during the Bucket Brigade days, you you wouldn't be, you and I would not be having this conversation. Um, the media coverage is different. People see the social justice component to this um, ongoing water war or water crisis. So I, I um, I, yeah. I don't know. I think we're still seeing that. And I, I think, um, as Emma mentioned, some of the relief packages that are coming in, um, we'll just start to see some benefits of ecosystems, hopefully ecosystems restoration. Is that a result of some of the activism? Or is it just, are we to the point that the federal government realizes the responsibility in repairing the damage that has been done to our region? When some members of your tribe do think you've been affected, I'd love to hear cut six of your sister-in-law, Mary Gentry. I've lived here in this community for almost 70 years, and I've hid, and I've been in the background, and I, I, haven't, um, I haven't realized how fearful I am to live in this community. My home, what you're doing, being a Native woman, you are doing things that I always wanted to do. This helps me put myself out there and through you, with you, beside you. We're going to leave it there. We've been talking about the water crisis in the West and the Klamath Basin with Joey Gentry, activist and member of the Klamath Tribe, and Emma Maris, an environmental writer and reporter who lives up there. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.